So I'll be talking about Indian suffrage debates, um, both in Britain and in India. Um, because at the height of the British suffrage movement in the Edwardian period, when British women were fighting violently or peacefully for the right to vote, the British Empire was also at its height. And in 1918, when the Representation of the People Act was passed, MPs here not only represented their constituency, um, and not only did they debate domestic and foreign policy, but they also had power over affairs in the empire. So MPs would debate issues around taxation, uh, trade, political reform in the empire and its colonies, including India. Now, many suffrage campaigners in Britain were aware of this and aware that their vote had wide influence beyond Britain. Many British suffrage campaigners were in favour of maintaining the empire and wished to strengthen the imperial mission through their participation in this parliament, through voting in MPs um, here. Some argued that British women would use the vote to maintain the empire and to maintain the civilising mission of the empire. Historian Antoinette Burton has shown how Indian women in particular were used as a symbol of concern by British suffrage campaigners. Further, many British feminists understood empire through a, uh, a system of racial hierarchies where white women were at the top and then Indian women were higher than women from Africa and, of course, Aboriginal women. Um, the conviction that Indian women, though, were a special feminist burden to British women was an expression of this so-called imperial feminism that Burton writes about, where one could be both feminist and progressive, but also imperialist. So these British campaigners often expressed concern around issues in India, such as purda, which is the veiling and segregation of m women, especially Muslim women, uh, attitudes towards widows and the poor treatment of widows in Indian society, or concerns around poor literacy and healthcare for Indian women, but often through a lens of superiority, exhibiting their protectiveness, protectiveness that if offered often little consideration of Indian women's needs. Though they were committed to a notion of global sisterhood, it's this understanding of racial hierarchies and uh, Western superiority that often pervaded through their sentiments. Um, so although there were a few Indian women who were involved in the British movement, largely they were used as objects or symbols with little consideration or thought about whether or how women of colour in Britain might be included within conversations uh, about the vote in Britain around citizenship and British belonging. The exception is Sophia Dulip Singh, who was born in Norfolk, um, who had grown up as part of the British aristocracy and then became a prominent member of the Women's Tax Resistance League and involved in various key suffrage demonstrations in London, was an, a close ally of Emmeline Pankhurst. Um, and I've put up this picture of Anita Anand's great biography of Sophia, which I urge you to read if you haven't already done so. So I'm not going to talk any more about um, Sophia. Because um, really conscious of some of the objectification of other Indian women and other um, women of colour in Britain, and really sometimes a quite introverted nature of the British movement, I want to think and shift this conversation, and we're going to shift, move beyond that photo, to um, the Indian subcontinent and debates around suffrage there. Because despite often patronising attitudes towards Indian women um, as being burdened by social and cultural restrictions, Indian women in India, through contacts and networks both with Indian women who lived in Britain and also around the world, were campaigning for their own rights. Uh, they were campaigning for the vote in India um, 
and doing this quite actively, although this is all tempered by the fact that they were a part of the British Empire. So although they were campaigning for a vote, um, and I'll, I'll, t I'll explain when in a minute, um, their political freedom was constrained by being ultimately governed by an imperial power. So campaigns for the enfranchisement of Indian women could only become an issue if there was a parliament in India which they could um, have a vote in or for. Um, and in 1917, the Viceroy of India called Lord Chelmsford and the Secretary of State for India, Edward Montague, began to discuss the idea of introducing representative assemblies, some kind of democratic assembly in India. So it's only from this time, from 1917 onwards, that Indian men and women could and actually did immediately start demanding political representation and to be part of the franchise to have a vote in India. So before 1917, Indian women weren't able to think practically about campaigning for the vote, but they were very aware of the British suffrage movement. There were lots of meetings in India around the vote about campaigns that were going on in Britain. Um, so um, lots of regular press, press reports around suffrage campaigns around the world. Um, Mahatma Gandhi had met various um, British suffrage campaigners in 1909. He himself had been influenced by some of their tactics, especially hunger striking. Um, and there were some Indian women who I've, I've mentioned briefly who lived in Britain and of course were involved um, in the British campaign. Now, Margaret Cousins, who was a very prominent Irish suffragette, had moved to India in 1915 with her husband, James. And she, this is a, um, a very faint picture, she arranged a delegation in, a 19, in 1917, which consisted of 14 women, the um, majority of whom were Indian, to meet with the Viceroy and Secretary of State and to demand votes for women in India. Despite this delegation and private interviews with various politicians, they had lots of letters of support from women around um, India. Um, the Viceroy and the Secretary of State, when they decided to introduce this new parliamentary introduce new parliamentary assemblies and to think about the franchise, failed to mention women at all when they discussed um, when they put forward their proposals for enfranchising Indian people, so only, they only discuss enfranchising Indian men. So a new central legislative assembly was going to be set up, as well as provincial assemblies, so provincial governments, as well as a, a central government, but only men who, who would meet certain um, property qualifications were considered in the discussion of the electorate. Merging out of these, these discussions, um, a peer called Lord Southborough was appointed to chair a franchise committee to think about the question of elections and franchise more closely. And now his committee toured India in 1918. Again, his committee received a huge number of letters and petitions from Indian men and women arguing that Indian women should have the vote and be considered in this, these discussions. Um, but the committee continued to ignore this issue. Um, they, uh, so British politicians on this committee and in conversation with British politicians here argued that women, again, women were constrained by the issues of purda, by poor literacy, um, that they did that conservative opinion in India just wouldn't allow women to, to have the vote um, in India. And they ignored all the support from Indian men who also said that, no, that's fine. We, we want you to enfranchise women. But they said, no, no, you don't, you don't actually want to. Um, we don't think you do. Um, 
So the Southern report was published in April 19, and not only did they ignore female franchise, they deliberately excluded women from the franchise. Um, explicitly in, their, in the language it said women are excluded, and so from an early stage in India's democracy, because of British government views and British politicians, um, women were excluded from the vote. Um, but I've said, you know, there are lots of petitions, there's lots of support for the Indian vote. So Indian women, Sarojini Naidu, Haribai Tata and her daughter Mitan Tata all came to London in the summer of 1919 to petition the government here and to urge once again for Indian women to be included in this new franchise. Why were women explicitly being excluded, they asked. They lobbied Parliament, they held meetings here in, in Parliament with MPs a number of times. They asked British men and women to write letters to their MPs, to lobby, um, to ask and to push um, for this, um, to, to change uh, the, the wordings of this, um, the new laws. Ultimately, the British government gave one concession, which is quite similar to what was going on in Australia. They would allow the Indian provinces the right to choose for themselves um, following a vote. So each province would have to have a vote in their own provincial governments, and if they wanted to enfranchise women, they could do so. And if, if, they, if women were enfranchised in those provinces, in the way in which the federal system worked in India, they then also had a national vote, um, and so could vote in national elections as well. So from 1921 onwards, Indian provinces started to have these votes in their democratic assemblies and started to award the votes uh, to women um, in Bombay and Madras first in 1921. But this was along the same terms as men were enfranchised, so there was only people who earned a certain amount of property. Um, by 1935, all provinces in British India had enfranchised women along these lines, but in practice, because of these property qualifications, it meant that less than 5% of Indian adult women had the vote, and in some provinces, less than 1%. The property qualification was even more insidious in India than it was in Britain in 1918. Um, very few women in India were able to inherit property. There were laws that actually pro prohibited women from inheriting property from their families, um, so very few women um, own property at all. In fact, some conservative campaigners expressed concern because they argued that it was only prostitutes and dancing girls in India who had the wealth um, to own property. And they weren't the right sort of women to be getting the vote first, which shows um, some of the class issues um, that were going on. Unlike in Britain, though, the age for women was not 30. Um, it was 25, so it's a little bit lower. And it was reduced to 21 in 1935 to all the provinces. Men um, was 21 from immediately. So with such a small percentage of the total electorate, Indian suffragettes had to continue to campaign and remobilize to campaign for the vote and think of solutions and how one could widen the franchise for women. And they offered a range of solutions, from introducing literary qualifications to reducing the property qualifications to this idea of group voting, a suggestion that 10 women could, so 10 women could have a collective vote um, which I don't really understand, but somehow they, they would work it out. Um, or, and someone suggested, just enfranchising women in cities. 
However, the main Indian women's group soon came to the conclusion that the only and best solution was to call for full universal adult suffrage and nothing else. Uh, many of you will be aware of many social divisions in India on along the lines of religion and caste. And despite all this, the, the, and the campaigners were quite elite women, but they, they realised the need that if they were going to push for franchise, they had to bring everyone into this and enfranchise all women from all classes. Um, And this is not an introverted campaign. Indian women met with and travelled around the world to international suffrage conferences to discuss this issue. And just to, because I, I don't want to anonymise these women, just to name a few, you know, to give them a voice. Uh, these women include Amrit Kaur, Sharifa Hamid Ali, Mutalakshmi Reddy, Dhanbati Ramarao, and I've already mentioned Sawaji Naidu, Haribai Tata, and Mitan Tata. Now, the demand for full adult franchise also came in response to British interventions in the debate. Many British suffrage campaigners turned their attention to India after 1918, including notably Eleanor Rathbone, who was one of the uh, an early female MP and a former president of the NUWSS. She and many of her contemporaries suggested that as British women had been enfranchised in stages. Only in 1918 did women over 30 with property get the vote, and then it was extended in 1928. That a stage-by-stage -stage basis of enfranchising women in India was also the way forward. Um, she agreed with the government line that enfranchising millions of Indian women in one go was logistically impractical, um, which raised the ire and anger of many Indian campaigners. Um, so Rathbone and her contemporaries actually suggested that the wives or widows of existing male voters could be enfranchised easily, and that was her solution. Uh, this suggestion that the wives or widows of male voters um, was something that offended um, many campaigners, as you um, can imagine, who clearly understood that their vote should not be dependent on being married or related to their husband's worth. Um, a British campaigning group, the Six Point Group, also supported Indian women who uh, disagreed with Rathbone. As their chair, Monica Waitley, put it, um, the Six Point Group abhorred the proposal to enfranchise women on their husband's qualification, describing it as entirely repugnant to the social and spiritual ideas of the East, which had received united opposition of Indian women with which they identified with. Um, and just as a little note, it should be noted that opposition to um, enfranchising women in India also came from Winston Churchill when these debates were going on. Um, despite all these protests, um, the policy um, taken up by the British government and introduced in 1935 was to enfranchise the wives and widows um, of Indian men, um, and they introduced a literary qualification, which depended on the, on the provinces and how they enforced it. I just want to um, read a, a quote from Eleanor Rathbone, who gave a Fawcett lecture um, at Bedford College in November 1935, which summarises um, some of the issues and, and her response to them. And so, sorry, it's quite a long quote, but I'll read out. Um, in the India Bill of, last, of the last session, a group of women inside and outside Parliament set themselves to secure for the women of India the best terms that they could get in the matter of eligibility to elective bodies and so on. 
We had not waited till the bill was before Parliament, but during this long series of conferences and committees which had preceded it, had continued to put forward our case and to back it by every kind of evidence, written and oral, of the necessity of, for our demands and of the strength of public opinion behind them. In the course of this long process, we arrived at fairly reliable estimates of the maxima we could hope to attain. And when the time came for presenting amendments, we put forward just those maxima. They fell considerably short of what Indian women themselves wanted and what, of what we wanted for them. And I'm afraid some of them thought of us rather time-serving and opportunist. But the actual result was that we did manage to secure very substantial concessions, more in number and extent than any other group which is working to amend the bill in a democratic direction. So ultimately, Rathbone is saying the government was never going to enfranchise all women anyway. She helped to at least enfranchise some more women. And that's an interesting question to think about, whether that whether that stage-by-stage -stage process was the best, the best and only solution, or whether um, the campaign that the Indian suffrage campaign has put forward, where they were adamant that only full adult franchise was the only way to campaign as, on this issue, um, was the right one. So Indian women had to continue campaigning after 1930, sorry, after 1935, um, and they went on campaigning until 1947. So really, a full 30 years of campaigning, um, and with independence, um, which was granted to India and Pakistan in 1947, they knew in India at least that they would get full adult franchise, as this was a pledge that Indian male nationalists had pledged to back in 1918, and they um, stood by it. So in 1949, um, full adult franchise was introduced in India um, for all classes, castes, backgrounds, men and women over 21. Um, so what we've seen in, in India um, is that as the democratic right was hard fought for, turnout in elections is relatively high. Um, in the last general elections, um, turnout was around 66%. Despite many hurdles around registration, intimidation, and ongoing issues around literacy, which electoral officers in India have tried to overcome. Um, and later on in this afternoon, Carol Sparry will talk much more about what's been going on around Parliament and thinking about uh, campaigns and concerns around actually getting more women to be represented in India. <laughs> 